This is Everyday Leaders. I'm your host, Melanie Ake. Everyday Leaders is an inspirational show to help you develop strategies to overcome everyday obstacles in your life. Today's guest will share the disciplines that he practices every day that allows him to achieve a life of success. Today's Everyday Leader teaches us about his own personal story of living out his daily life with intention. Intentionality is truly about defining how to take that first step towards your journey. You see, he made intentional decisions, one after the other, that allowed him to explore his passions and discover his journey. His personal journey allowed him to become a great inspiration for others. His story has a wonderful and authentic message, and he teaches us how to use these simple techniques to apply for your life every day. Tim Travis is my guest today. Everyday Leaders 50 and 50, show 34 starts now. Welcome to the program, Tim. Oh, hi. Thanks for inviting me. I am so, it's so great. High school connections. Now, you're a couple of years older than me. That's okay. We have connected again because you have an incredible life journey. And I begged you to come on this program because this is all about inspiration and people that are trying to either figure out where they need to go next because they're stuck or, hey, I never thought about doing something like that. And how in the world could I ever leave everything that's comfortable and go outside and experience things that are going to really add value to my life? And you have done that from the very beginning about your beliefs and about your ability to just pick up and go. Like I, I say, it's a nomad life, but you have experienced so much. Uh, so thanks for being on the program. And, and I really am excited for you to share your journey. Well, I'll see if it's interesting to people. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I know that in your thought, you know, people that know you from Greenwood High School, Greenwood, Indiana, may think of you as connecting it to a story that has been, you know, in, in movies, um, the big Lebowski and kind of the dude, the laid back character of the dude that just kind of lets things roll off of his back and lets life come to him. And I, and your voice as well kind of reminds you of, Hey, I don't let things get to me. And so, but you were so intentional as we reconnected and you were telling me about all your story from, you know, from your childhood to IU to, your marriage and and just everything that you've done, it has been about the intention and your beliefs about yourself. So take us back to when you were growing up in Greenwood, Indiana, and the things that you had the, the capacity to kind of in your mind think that you were going to do when you, you know, kind of as I graduate, this is what I want to do next and where that started because uh, I, I really want to take us back to that, because that had that formed your entire life. Well, um, let's see. When I, when I was in high school, I always was not a very good student, and I'm not, I don't read or write very well, which is ironic. Um, so I struggled, and I wasn't really wanting to go to college or anything like that. And so um, I had a friend of mine who had already dropped out of uh, high school, and the day I graduated, we decided to move to wherever Hoosier boy thinks is the promised land. We drove to Florida. (laughs) (laughs) 
So literally, I thought you had to go through graduation to actually graduate. So, you know, he's, they're all waiting out in the, my van in the parking lot for me to <laughs> go through the ceremony so I could be graduated. And, um, and, and then we took off straight for Florida, and that lasted until Valdosta, Georgia, when um, the engine, I guess you got to keep oil in an engine. I learned that at the tender age of 18. And it died in Valdosta, Georgia, which is a pretty far away from Greenwood, Indiana, as far as culturally. And uh, that's when I learned to hitchhike and get along with uh, people from all over the world. Isn't that funny? So that first experience was nothing that you had expected. And the, how did you guys, you know, what did you do when you were in Valdosta? You, you have a broken down car. And so then you start networking and making relationships. And, and the next step is you figure it out, right? Well, right. You know, I, I had it towed to a junk guy who let me store it. And then I can remember setting our two backpacks out on the bumper and loading everything up and then walking away from it for the first time. And uh, all that. But I guess I should go back to during high school, um, my senior year of the high school, I, li- I was kicked out of my house by my parents. And I had to live in that van my entire senior year um, with no heat. And, and, you know, that was a drag in many ways, abandonment and all that. But in some ways, I, I thrived on just living hard like that and scrounging up whatever to eat. And what would have been really rough for some kids, I just sort of liked in the end. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people think that they're going to put you in a position to punish you. And really, it helps you to explore your inner beliefs. And I was 18 in high school and had my own van apartment you know it was cool (laughs) i mean i didn't you know i didn't have parents anymore and that was nice but every kid's dream but what it does it forces you to decide how you're going to be responsible right you're either going to make it or break it yeah and it just teaches it really taught me how to survive you know it, it got rough i was eating at the wheeler mission i'd walk around the mall and look for people's whatever they left behind i mean it was like that for me in high school and that's pretty amazing. I think when we go back and, you know, you say, what happened to Tim Travis? And people have followed you on your journey of, you know, this this whole career that we're going to talk about. Um, but but that's what started out your thinking of, well, anything's possible. Like, I, I don't right. have any restrictions. And there's nothing to hold me back. So as you thought about then, you know, going, going in um, – getting an education and going to IU, you know, the step from going from your van to applying to Indiana University. What was that process like? Well, um, you know, I, I was hitchhiking around the country. I was with Kent, my friend, for a while, Kent Byron, I should say. And he peeled off, and I kept traveling around and uh, – you know, I, you just work enough crummy jobs that finally my sister talked me into going. I was on the phone a lot with my sister. And I stuck, She stuck with me despite all the getting kicked out and stuff. And uh, she finally talked me into going. And college in these days was 500 bucks a semester or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it wasn't a huge money issue in these days. So, you know, Terry said, hey, I've talked mom and dad into paying for it. Do you want to go to IU? And 
I said, sure. And, you know, next thing I know, I'm moving into the dorm down there. Mm-hmm. And high school-wise, totally not prepared to go to college. I, I majored in pretty much shop in, college, in high school. Mm-hmm. And so as you started... I don't know if I answered it. No, it, it's... Um... You know, so your parents, you know, so things kind of changed for you. It was like perspective of living in your van and then having somebody that that was really close to you, you know, seeing that, hey, you you really probably should think about this. And if I can help arrange things, then there's there's some opportunity. And so your your sister was that person, right? Yes. And and she really we even have the letter she sent me, but she really she wanted she talked me into it because I could race in little 500 and I was a big bike racer all through grade school, middle school, high school, yep. racing quite a bit, um, before the whole fan thing came. And that, um, so I, little 500 was a big deal to be able to get into that mm-hmm. and to race for that. And then I raced on the Indiana university team as well. So using your strengths again, you know, people recognizing that you had a strength that you could use into that capacity, setting you up for success, knowing that that was a passion of yours to bring you. And then and then here you are, are now a student at Indiana University doing something that you love, right? Thinking about cycling first and then, hey, this is kind of an added benefit. This is added value. I can get an education. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> Yeah, it worked out somewhat like that. When it was all done, I'd race bikes a lot, and I got handed a diploma, so I can't complain. And that's pretty cool. So so what did you graduate from IU with? You, you... A, a bachelor's degree in education, physical education. Yeah, and so and that's true to your heart. You know, that's true to your soul, and that's— That was, but I couldn't find a job doing it later. That's another story. <laughs> so I never got to work as a PE teacher— and that's why I went back to graduate school later in life and became a special education teacher mm-hmm. before I quit that and became a hobo <laughs> again, <laughs> again. Do you have a van again? <laughs> oh, I'd love to get another van. The problem with the van is that, you know, it's so snowy here. I live in Whitefish, Montana now, and it's so snowy here in the winter that a, a two-wheel drive van would just not cut it. Yeah. So <laughs> I would love a van or RV. I do. I would. I'm probably going to buy another RV or something. Oh, there you go. So, all right, there's a big gap here from where you were at IU to what you're doing now. And you're you're pretty much self-sufficient, retired, living the life that everybody says, wow, that, how did you get there? So I want you to go from the thought of, hey, I'm going to just kind of start riding my bike because I enjoy that, something that I love to do. And I don't really have anything tying me down. And take us to post-IU. And now you're out in California, Arizona. What's that look like for you? What's that lifestyle look like for you? Well, when I graduated from IU, um, like I said, I couldn't find a teaching job at the time. Um, They had just reduced the amount of PE kids have to have in Indiana, actually, where my license was. So suddenly there were no jobs. I guess I should have seen that coming, but so I, you know, when you graduate from school, there's a clean slate that you can just take off. Mm-hmm. So pretty much I've graduated from school three times and I took off traveling all three times. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, you could, I was single and I didn't have a job or any apartment or anything. So you can just take off. 
So I took off traveling that time alone for about two years um, and went all over the place, Mexico and Central America and uh, up through California. And I worked in a, I ran out of money um, in Mexico. So I was working odd jobs on the way up. And then I wound up working in a bike shop in San Diego for a while in Mission Beach. That was cool. Mm-hmm. And then I wound up working in a bike shop. And then I traveled some more. I was Basically, then I was working from town to town. And it was pretty easy. They had daily labor in these days. So you just showed up and you had work and they gave you cash. So, what so kind of, I wound up in... What kind, of, what kind of things were you doing? You know, people think about like, hey, I, I have an eight to five job. And if I wanted to leave and go live Tim Travis's life, what what are the well, things that you have to think about giving up? To, well, you, you got to be able to sleep for free a lot. That's the key to being able to travel cheap is being able to sleep for free. Mm-hmm. Um, in a van, that's easy because you sleep in the van. On a bicycle, it's easy because you don't have a car to hide. So you can, you know, you, I've camped in all kinds of city parks and graveyards and you name it, thousands of places. Um. So the the, key, the trick to living like that is to be able to live cheap. Mm-hmm. And I've never been one that needed much in the material things. I mean, I have money now, but I still don't buy much. Mm-hmm. It's just not my, I just never cared about buying things. I like to do things. Absolutely. Did I answer? I never know if I answer no, your no, question. No, 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 no. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> this is just about your life. People... So many people that I coach have just this idea, you know, you get it set in your mind from your environment, from your surroundings, from your friends, from your family, these expectations that you have to be or live a certain way to fit into society. And what I love about you is you never believed that and you never followed that. And this, you followed your soul of, Hey, I'm going to follow the strengths that I love. And it's just going to lead me into this adventure. And your life is really, you know, your tombstone should say life adventure. <laughs> You've done. I think I, yeah. I think I just went with the flow. Like I never had a plan or just thought about it much. I just sort of went with the flow. Uh, I, I guess I should finish the story. I, so I traveled around after IU and then I, I'm, I was a ski, I was working as a ski bum in Vermont at a resort called Killington, and I'd never skied a day in my life, and I'm putting ski boots on people. <laughs> because I'd worked in bike shops in Bloomington in college and, and stuff, they hired me to, to be a ski technician. Mm-hmm. So I did that, and I met a girl there, a woman there, and um, we wound up taking off in her car on a six-month backpacking trip we went from national park to national park and did all these big backpack trips that was a lot of fun wow and how old but are you ran... how old are you at that point oh boy you asked tough questions how old was i i was probably 25 yeah after college yeah. I, I you know I, I started college at 20 so and i took the scenic route and got out and i was probably 25 or 26 when i did all that and then um we went, ran out of money in arizona so we wound up, um, I, you know, I was kind of hunting around for a town I wanted to live in, and I definitely wanted to move out west. So we, I wound up uh, staying in Prescott, Arizona mm-hmm. um, for a couple years, and then I went to graduate school in Flagstaff, Arizona, and then I moved back to Prescott, Arizona, and became a special ed teacher. Mm-hmm. So, huh? so in between this time, you're traveling? You're tra- for about two years. Yeah, Two yeah. years, and then and then you go on this journey 
across the world, basically. On your right. Own. And after graduate school, I met my future ex-wife, <laughs> my future wife in graduate school. She was, uh, and um, no, there's no hard feelings. And um, we moved to Prescott together and bought a house. And I was a teacher and she's a hydrogeologist. And we were living the normal American, you know, life that most people live. But we decided not to have kids, and that was a conscious decision. And then neither of us were big spenders, and we just kept socking the money away in the stock market. And the next thing we knew, we had $100,000. And, you know, she was really sick of her job because it was demanding and a lot of hours. So we just, we both liked to ride, we both liked to camp, and we just said, you know, we might as well just do something. So we took off. And that was an 11 year trip. And that's where all the books and everything came from. And that is amazing because when you think about having the experience, you know, some people go and they don't know this until later in life. And they say, oh, well, what would people want to know about my life? Right. And so you were just living your journey and said, hey, I don't really I'm not doing this for anybody else. I'm doing this for us. We're having an exciting time. It's what we feel that we're called to do. We just want to go explore. And so all those things that you did then you wanted to tell people about. And so you created, you know, you wrote these books and you have, you know, this, this fabulous website um, that people can connect to you uh, about your journey and it's downtheroad.org. Uh, but it's, it's tremendous that talks about, you know, your experiences and links to the books. But I want to talk to you specifically today about those things that you experienced as you were on this 11 year journey. And things that I know you're just like, hey, this is it's all in the book and it's really great. But for people that have not gone away from that eight to five job and they say, you know, at some time in my life, I want to go experience this. Or maybe they've never taken a cruise or maybe they've never traveled outside of the United States. You know, their thing is to go see all the national parks. You did that really early because you're like, hey, I just want to check this off my list. I'm not going to wait to experience this. I'm going to do it now. And that's, I think the message from this podcast is don't wait because you never know. And you gave up, and I'm not going to say you traded off because you didn't really feel like you were trading anything off. You didn't have those expectations, but I, I was just going with the flow. I actually feel like I just goofed off my entire life and got lucky here at the end, <laughs> not the end, but you know, here at the, here in the current, you're in the current. Um, I really don't feel like there was anything special about me. I just sort of goofed off and went with the flow and went to the next party and went to the next country and just kept traveling. I, I wrote the books because I needed money on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, I was never, I mean, I near, had a hard time passing English all through high school and college. Never learned to type, but it was one of the few ways I could make money on the road. And it's a good story. My editor told me that I could have wrote it in crayon and it would have sold because it was just a good story. It was true. And, um, I don't know. It just feels like I got lucky to me. You were being authentic, you know, doing the things that you felt passionate about, whether you say you had a plan or not, you had intentions. Hey, we're going to save this much money, or we have realized that we have saved this much money we have a decision to make. We don't have to stay here in this box of what, you know, an an eight to five kind of job, having the weekends to go explore. We can do what we want today. And you did it. 
And so you. Yeah, took- my whole first book goes through that because I knew people would want to know that. Yep. And we didn't just flip a switch and go from living in a house to, to leaving it. Mm-hmm. For years, people would interview me and ask me what the hardest part of the trip was, and I would say riding out of the driveway. Right. Because once you leave, everything falls into place. So that that is what a traveler has to truly believe that you'll find a place to sleep, or you'll find help in the rain, or whatever it is, you'll get through. Um, you just have to have you just have to have getting out the door is the hard part because that took moving bank accounts around and downsizing the house, and you know you had to unadult and suddenly go to be a drifter. I mean, we didn't have health insurance for years. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. It all worked out. I'm so I'm. If you can't tell, I'm surprised it all worked out. <laughs> but you... we thought the books would maybe help help subsidize the travels. We didn't know they'd sell like they did. Mm-hmm. But it's because people dream about taking that first step. A lot of people dream their whole lives of what would that look like, and they the fear, you know, that the belief that they have inside of them is the fear that they struggle with their whole life to say, well, but I'm not good enough. I wouldn't be able to do it. I would be compared to, I'll make a mistake. It's not the right time in my life. All of those things that they think about in their minds, it's because of that subconscious fear that keeps people back from living the life that they were intended to live. And And Americans, more than most people I've met, associate their self-worth with their job. Mm Mm-hmm. And not everybody, not 100%, I'm generalizing. But So when you leave your job, it's really hard to let go of this self-defining thing. And, you know, your your car, you don't, have a, you don't own a car anymore. A house you can have friends over or show off. You're just pretty much two bikes and ten bags, and that's it, you know. And, and so you really learn what you learned uh, is different cultures, different people, you know, how to, inf- how to influence. And, and we talk about, you know, leadership qualities. So out of this, so many things that you had to believe in yourself. You had to take that step. You had to take that next step. That first step was the most important. And that's what a lot of people fear is. What, what will that, if I close my eyes and I've set everything up, but can I literally walk out that door, hand the keys to someone else, and that's just be- take the belief jump? right? That things are going to be what they're going to be. I don't really have control over it. Like you said, I just kind of went with the flow. You accepted it. it. In the book, I described it as we stepped off into the darkness, not knowing if there was something to land on. Mm -hmm. We just did it. And we figured that we were both educated. We didn't have any debt. If it went terribly wrong, we could just come back and get a job. So we weren't really risking much, you know, but you were risking, you were just risking the opportunity, like that gap in time. You knew you were going to enjoy it together, but that's what I'm saying for a <laughs> lot of people. You know, this is a great story and a great journey because all the things that you did intentionally were to just kind of prove to yourself like, hey, this isn't a big deal. We, we want to do this. This is our next kind of gap that we need to fill and explore and discover and so with you doing that, when you were out you know, away from the United States, so you go over to Europe and now you're traveling, what was one of the biggest things that you thought about that, um, that you experienced that you didn't expect? 
Well, um, all all people. Once you first, you go to like Mexico and you figure, oh, this is how Mexicans live, and then you go to Guatemala and you figure this. Then you start realizing that people are people, and we all kind of want the same things, and it, we're not so different. And you're never going to go around the world by being mean to people or fighting with people. That's you're going to get killed doing that. So you learn to be a diplomat and to make friends everywhere you go. Often I towered over people. I was so tall. I'm six three, mm-hmm. but I would always stay seated if people approached our camp. You know, even though I would mind, I wanted to be up on my feet, but just always stay seated. Always be smiling. Always act like you're not there or you're, you know, to cause trouble. You you, you will not get around the world by shoving a gun in people's face. Mm-hmm. You're going to get around the world with with peace and love and being diplomatic. That's so important. You know, you can take that into corporate America. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I wouldn't know. I would not know. We're all envious of you. But how true is that? Because if you just step back and be more of a, um, you know, studying behavior, studying people, and understanding that it's it's kind of your role to fit into that culture, to fit into whatever the surroundings are. Right. Instead of trying to control it, you went with a sense of purpose of intention. I'm here to learn. I'm here to explore. I'm here to be a part of this instead of right. not change. You're not there to change anyone's mind. Right. Or getting involved with how they live or you're not there to even improve their lives. You're just there to observe and make friends. And, and you, you do try to fit in as best you can. But when you're a foot and a half taller than everybody around you and. You know, hundred pounds heavier and white skinned, you you stick out. Mm-hmm. So from from where you started learning, so when you were in in that position, and then uh, I want you to talk to me about one of the the things, the experiences um, that we talked about offline, but that really drew you to say, this is probably one of the roughest things I've ever done in my life. Um, are you talking about getting arrested in China? Yeah. <laughs> There's so many things. Is that what you're talking about? That's exactly what I'm talking about. Well, okay. Yeah. It, it was, I like to describe it as like, what's the furthest you've been from home? Well, it's when we got arrested in China. I felt like I was the furthest from home. And, um, you know, we had been traveling. My ex-wife and I have been traveling at this point. I'm, I, I, I'm bad at the years, but I'm guessing five years. Or so we'd been on the road and we were definitely professional, you know, we knew how to do this. And we had landed in Thailand and Bangkok and we rode around Thailand and then we rode across Cambodia and we spent five months in Vietnam, which is a fascinating country to visit as an American. And then we crossed the border into China and uh, like 10 days later, so we really didn't know China very well. We were in the country for a year total, but at this point, just 10 days. So we didn't know how things went and, uh, we were riding down a really remote road and I saw what I thought were farmers in the distance in their native costume, you know, mowing the, working the fields and all this. And so I pulled my camera out and I zoom in and, and immediately I could tell that they were all prisoners chained together, working on a prison farm. And that's illegal to take such a picture in China. I found out later. And, um, you know, you can't read anything. All the signs are in Chinese, and they don't do, like, little pictures much. It's They, they love their script. Mm-hmm. And so the, we were very near a military base. It, it, what it was is a, 
in China, military and factories are kind of all together in a prison structure. So the, the prisoners work in the factories. Many of the products we enjoy are made in prison labor camps. And um, we didn't know that. And then it was, I can remember it to this day, we saw all these soldiers run out of the fort. And my wife says, well, what are they doing? I said, well, army guys are always running, you know, doing, doing that. <laughs> but no, they ran straight over to us and surrounded us with their guns. Wow. And uh, suddenly we were um, escorted into the, um, it, what it was is a university to teach military officers, mm -hmm. uh, military officer training thing. I don't know how much, in, I don't have any military experience, so there's that. But, and then we were questioned, they were worried that we were a BBC reporter or something like that. Because wow. a lot of kids disappear in China and their parents hire people to look for them. And, you know, you, you're protesting in Beijing one day and you're locked up hoeing rice the next. Mm -hmm. And um, so they thought we were all that. And, you know, we weren't. We simply just weren't. Uh, all At first, it, no one spoke any English. Even the lady who was supposed to teach English at the university really couldn't speak English, but she could write it. So we kept pointing at the word in the phrase book for embassy and all this. Um they separated us and, and questioned us separately, which was easy for us because we were just telling the truth. Right. We're just two bike tourists. I told them if I wanted to take pictures of you guys farming, I, I wouldn't have wore a bright orange bike jersey and been standing in the middle of the road. <laughs> wow. I would have just downloaded it from Google Earth, which they didn't find funny. But, <laughs> but you know, as far as awareness... When you think back about that, I don't want to stop your story because this is pretty amazing for people to listen to. But you think about the awareness, if you would have understood that, you probably wouldn't have ridden down that same road and <laughs> done that. I wouldn't have taken a picture on that road, no. Yeah. I would have ridden down it. You know, China's set up weird. A foreigner can't drive in China except for in Beijing, so, and the buses won't take you to certain places. They'll tell you it's full or something. They never say we won't go there. They just tell you it's full or they give you some reason. But on a bicycle, they don't, they, that's kind of a loophole in the rules there. Mm -hmm. So you can go places where they're not used to seeing foreign tourists mm -hmm. on a bike. Mm -hmm. And this was right before the um, Beijing Olympics or not right before, but it's when the torch was about to go around. Mm -hmm. And China was really trying to open up and show the world that they were this modern country so we lucked out and we could go to tibet for three months and not have any restricted areas or anything so we biked and part of that china trip was going through tibet but i guess i should finish the getting arrested story yeah definitely um it really wasn't a big deal in the end uh we were held for about eight hours they were never mean to us they were never slapping us around or anything um it was when you went to the bathroom you had an armed escort with you including outside the windows wow but they once they determined we weren't as bad, oh, and they had to fly a guy in with four huge gold stars on his military uniform, and everybody was nervous and saluting. So I'm guessing he was very high-ranking. I think in the book I, I knew, I think he's a general or something. Mm -hmm. But he had traveled abroad and stuff, so he saw one, took one look at us and was not worried about it. And uh, they eventually just let us go. And when I went to apply to get an extension, because we entered the country with a three-month visa, there was no way to get a visa extension that I think we were blackballed in the computer because of all this. And, um, so I had to, I had to 
hire a dodgy Australian guy to get me a dodgy visa. I probably shouldn't go into it much more, but I got a nine-month extension with a business visa. Wow. Even though I wasn't, I had business letterhead and business everything mm-hmm. that never really existed. But I got, I got to spend a year in China. That's amazing. And so where did you spend most of your time for the next several months? Well, it was spring when we crossed from Vietnam to China. So I said, I, I plan everything around the season. So it was spring in the south when the weather's nice. And then I went to the north up to Mongolia and north of Beijing up through there in Sichuan. And um, in the summer when it's normally cold up there in the winter. And then coming through in the south is when we went through uh, Tibet mm-hmm. in the fall. And it was starting to get pretty cold. And then we descended down, you know, like a 10,000-foot hill into Laos, the country of Laos, and re-entered Southeast Asia and rode to Singapore. So how hard is it when you're traveling like that? You know, you think about just the basics. You know, even though you don't need real housing, you're not going to go to a place every night. To be able to coordinate the money that you need and just making sure that you're you're going to be able to survive in those conditions. What were you thinking about? Well, money you can just pull out of an ATM machine in most countries. Oh, I, I shouldn't say machine. Out of an ATM in most countries. Um, we were living on $100 a week. I can remember that, which can go a long way in China and not very far in Australia. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I don't think I've ever thought about these things so deeply. We just sort of went with the flow. And we had money in the bank, so we weren't too worried about that. And there was also retirement money that we never touched. So we never felt like we were going to run out of money. And then I wrote, after two, when we left, we calculated we had money for seven years. But after the second year, when I was in South America, I I wrote um, and published a book in Bariloche, Argentina, to help fund the next trip and then flew to Bangkok. So when you're traveling though, and you're writing, so you've got a journal, you're writing this book, how do you hook up with a publisher? How do you, how do you do those things when you're on the road? Well, we looked at publishers and we had people eager to publish us, but they only pay you 6%. And I've always been, if there's one survival skill I've always had, I've always been a businessman. Um, that's how I survived money-wise in high school, and it wasn't always legal business. That's how I survived all through graduate school and all that, which I paid for myself. And I ran a bike shop out of my house. And I've always been a businessman up to this day. So, you know, I wasn't going to take 6% for going with a publisher. Mm-hmm. So we decided to publish it ourselves, which is actually pretty easy to do now. And so now you get 100% of the profit. And it, it's, it sells probably the same as if I had a publisher. Mm-hmm. Because I know there's, so a, self, well, there's a lot of people. Well, you think about, you know, you have been such a leader of intention. And you just said it yourself. You've been a businessman, really, an entrepreneur in spirit and mind your whole life. So using those strengths to be able to say, hey, I, I know I have confidence. I can do this. I've. That you'll find a way to make money somewhere. There's always a way to make money. You'll survive, right? You'll it's, survive. It's how I mean, a lot of times you learn a gig, like you go to where international people park their yachts, and you show up with all your bags on your bike. And what they want to do is go into town and get some beer and, and groceries. 
So you got a bicycle in all these bags. So you leave them all your camping stuff as collateral, and they give you money, and you start running trips into town. The next thing you know, all the yachts are wanting you to go buy different things for them or this and that, you know. And um, you just kind of got where you knew you could make money at any big yachting place. Mm -hmm. I love people. These people that live on the yachts are cool. (laughs) I want to be that person someday. (laughs) You'll have some story about some big storm. That's what they tell stories about, some gigantic storm that caught them off guard. Uh-huh. Exactly. Well, because you're always planning for the weather there. I mean, it's, uh, you know, we have a sailboat, and so we're always thinking about, is it the right weather to be able to get to our destination? Um, and so when you, when I think about you in the same kind of context, and you're traveling around the world, and you've got, you're trying to plan around weather, trying to plan around what's the best season to be, where we need to be so that we can do what we want to do. And what's one of the, maybe the stories that you can share with us that that was the most, um, I guess, surprising from a weather perspective? And what, what did you do? Hmm, like a, a weather event? I'm trying yeah. to think. Um, I see, I think Tasmania was a lot colder in November than we expected, and it snowed on us, so... <laughs> But at the big weather events, you know, let's see. I was camping in New Zealand when a gale came up, a typhoon. Wow. And we were actually in a campground, but that doesn't, that you're still out in it. And so that was bad. We had to pack the tent up and hide in the campground. So that was okay. I guess one of the worst is I was camping along the, the it was it Mississippi or Missouri River in Nebraska. I can't remember which one now. I think the Missouri River. And um, a huge storm came up, and it was one of those nights we went to bed, and I said, oh, we don't even need to stick the tent down, you know, because you get lazy, and you don't want to put the tent up completely. So we just we had the fly off of it, which is like the rain part on top, and it didn't have it staked down, and a humongous storm came up, and lightning actually hit the field around us. And uh, it just went from not being like, oh, we'll just crash and deal with it in the morning to this huge storm, and we had nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just held the tent down till it passed and, that, and then and we had to get out and put the fly on it and held it down. And, uh, you know, and that was in our own country that that happened. Mm-hmm. But, a lot of places you're traveling, you get rooms. So you're not dealing with the weather as much. If you, I'm in China on a hundred bucks a week, I'm staying in rooms most nights, mm-hmm. but they're $3 rooms, $5 rooms. Mm-hmm. So uh, to be able to. You know, did you ever did you ever have a mentor? Did you ever follow anybody that had done something like this before you to get this this kind of crazy idea of, well, we can do this. This isn't a big deal. Um, there was a book that I read. It was actually in the Greenwood High School Library. I read, and I am not one that have read many books, but it was called Miles from Nowhere by Barbara Savage, and it was she, they did a, such a trip in the seventies. And that just seemed so much harder because they didn't have an ATM card to get money. They were actually having to do the old bank transfer and having a letter. I mean, it was a real hassle for them to deal with money. And they had to carry a lot of money. But they traveled all over the world, the savages did. Um, And I read that book, and that kind of made me know I could do it. There was a book, not about biking, but called The People's Guide to Mexico, Mm -hmm. which talked about this guy traveling around in his microbus. It's a real hippie culture book. But I'm like, if this guy did all this in Mexico, I can go. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't think. 
I remember being scared when I, when I was on a solo trip after IU. I can remember being petrified of camping in Mexico because you hear all these bad things, right? And sure enough, the first night I'm camped in the desert. I, I hop this fence and I'm camped in this field with some cows. And a car pulls up at like a five in the morning and the gate opens and they pull in. And I'm like, oh, crap, they're going to kill me now. And I hear all the doors open and hear all the doors shut of the truck. And it's like, oh, here it comes, you know. So I'm out. And there's this woman and her kids. And her kids insisted that their mom bring us breakfast. So it was, you know, we went from being scared to death. I apologized for camping there and hopping the fence. And the lady was like, the fence is for the cows. (laughs) They didn't really care. They They find it odd that you'd want to camp like that, but they don't give a crap at all where you camp in Mexico. So it's an easy country to travel. Wow. That's a pretty cool story about, you know, the compassion, right? And you talked about that a little bit, just being in a different culture, but understanding that everybody has compassion to help and, and give, and uh, you don't have to fit Just be in. interested in someone foreign, you know. They, people are just really interested in foreigners. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you just sort of learn that if someone walks up, their odds are they don't want to cause you any trouble. They're just someone interested because there you are camping in their field. <laughs> They have that curiosity. What in the world are you doing here and why? <laughs> What's your purpose, right? What's your intent? Yeah. Camping outside of Mexico City in, um, I forget the name of the town now, but we were in a um, fruit orchard. I forget what they were growing there. And we were camped in the orchard, and I thought we were pretty hidden. But some kids had gotten off their school bus and walked by and saw us and went running into the house saying, we can we, we can speak Spanish at this point, but they're saying they're gringos in the orchard, <laughs> gringos in the orchard, and they're you know dad came out and at first he was you know concerned, and then the same thing we stayed with those people for three days. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, oh. go ahead. When um, and I just want to ask you this because I know that you have failures. My husband used to be a cyclist and uh, competitive and things. And you think about the breakdowns that you have on your bike, right? So when you're on this journey, you have, you're going to have repairs. You're going to have flats. You're going to have things that happen. What, what, oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. So what was a time when you maybe weren't as prepared? And I know you're you're kind of like, hey, go with the flow. But – and something that happened to you, an incident um, that really strikes out that you, you may have like learned, Hey, I I need to do this differently. Or, um, you know, was there anything that happened to your bike along the way that you can share? Well, on the big trip, actually, no, I had worked in a lot of bike shops before we flew to any developing part of the country. I would buy new everything. I was pretty good at heading off stuff, but on the trip just after IU where I went alone, no, Mm-hmm. I was a lot less experienced, and I was in Chiapas, Mexico, and there was an uprising down there, so it was getting pretty dodgy. There were roadblocks, and there was government soldiers, and there were rebel soldiers, and we didn't care. That's with this Austrian guy traveling through, and um, so it was pretty dodgy down there to begin with. And my rear hub blew up. In these days, it was a freewheel. It blew my free will, so I couldn't go anywhere. If you know, my bike basically, I couldn't pedal, and uh, I had to hitchhike back. I mean, that's the worst that can happen to you. Is you throw your thumb out, some truck picks you up, and you drive back to the nearest town and deal with it from there. Mm-hmm. Did you ever feel unsafe? Though we talk about a lot of times, you know, just this 
this comfort zone and being uncomfortable and these fears. So when your bike bike breaks down and you're hitchhiking, did you ever, I mean, what, what crossed your mind? Like, it's just cool. I'm going to get, somebody's going to pick me up and I'm going to get to the next place. Yeah. You just hold your thumb out there and go with the flow until someone pulls over. It's universal. Yeah. The problem with a developing country like that is the car space is limited and they, if they have a truck, it's generally full. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of things drive by before something picks you up. And I, we got in an Apple, I remember I got in an Apple harvesting truck. So I was sitting back there with my bike and all these crates of apples. And they drove me into San Cristobal. I can remember that. God, I was so young in all these days. <laughs> but see, I think the lesson here is as you, as you continued to kind of this journey that you were on, at first, you didn't really know what to expect, right? You didn't really know how to prepare. You didn't know how to expect. But you kept following your path of your passion. And things just continued to work out. Things you got better. You got prepared. Once you leave, everything will fall into place. Mm-hmm. Like all those fears are just unfounded. It does not take a rocket scientist to bike around the world. It's pretty easy to do. But the, really the hard part is leaving and course all your friends are telling you you're crazy for quitting your job and you're on the way up and you'll be principal someday and the same thing that cindy got and my mom and dad have hated it to, to this day they think i'm a loser for doing this um somewhat i mean it's it, that's mellowed in the years but definitely in the beginning there was a lot of resistance on the home front for traveling and um to this day i don't i don't know if my dad's even read my books or not well, but to you, it's all about, you know, your purpose and your journey. And today, I want you to kind of bring us back to all these things that you've learned and you've traveled and, and you know, now you're secure. You're like, financially, I don't really have a worry about anything because you've done so much and you've, you've really intentionally planned your life to be where you are at this stage. And you look back and go, yeah, I didn't really plan it, but it did fall into place. Because you were following a path. You didn't listen to anybody else. You believed that this was where you were supposed to be next. Whether that meant I planned it or whether things, you know, you were smart enough from a business perspective, from just, you know, if you want to call it street smarts perspective, you were listening to your own soul. And so today uh, you are teaching. You're, You're back kind of giving back to high school kids. Cause that's what you, I, sub- I, I substitute teach and that might be two days a week. So, yeah, but it's, but it's something that you are still connected to. Yeah. I, I, you know, and it really, it wasn't for that. I just flake out in town. So being with those kids is good for me. They keep me much more normal. I, I've always been really out of the box of a thinker to the point that I've worked really hard at hiding it. And I know people say that in jest and stuff, but I'm not kidding. Um, mm-hmm. I've just always thought so differently than everyone around me, and it's not always better. I'm not saying it's always better. It certainly led me into some dark holes, but I've just always been a very, very independently-minded person and independently-thinking person, and I didn't have to have somebody do it before me for me to do it. And, you know, who knows? I'm taking a break now, but I may do something crazy again. Well, you've been an inspiration, Tim. People think about leadership and especially why I wanted to have you on this program because people need to find inspiration in different ways. And so from you, you know, taking this from 
being young, following your path, having people that helped you influence the direction in your life from, you know, your parents pushing you out to your sister bringing you back to say, hey, this is something that's important to, you know, having your purpose, getting married, traveling around the world, doing it with your intention of your strength. And now kind of coming back to saying, hey, I've got the things that I want in my life. And now I'm, I'm giving back a little bit. I'm helping to connect to kids that I think can, you know, enjoy what I have to offer and, and share my stories. You've written these books, your website, downtheroad.org can connect people to kind of your journey. Um, and you are a leader and you're somebody to be celebrated for following your own heart because people, again, get afraid to do that in life for a lot of reasons. And so I really, I just appreciate you so much. And I'm so glad that you, you know, you're here to kind of share and inspire people. It makes a big difference in the world. Well, thanks very much. I'm humbled by all that, and I appreciate all that. Um, I would say as far as the kids go, um, kids are inherently looking. I mean, they know what the normal thing in life is, what we used to call the nine-to-five job and the white picket fence. We, in high school, kids are often looking for a different route than that. And I, and I talk to them a lot about it, that, you know, you have choices. Just yesterday, I asked a kid, what he's, a senior, what he's going to do when he graduates. And he said he didn't know, and he felt real ashamed of that. And I said, kid, there's nothing wrong with not knowing. Mm -hmm. It's more of a problem if you think you know and you really don't, and you borrow 30 grand to go to school. So, you know, I told him, why don't you go be a ski bum? So we talked about different countries he could work in and just taking off and traveling and ways to do that. And kids are always looking for a – I mean, everyone would love a a high-paying job that's two hours a day or something. So they're always looking for a career that doesn't just stress them out. But in the end, most people wind up with being stressed out. They do. And and because, again, learning from you, uh, it's so important. I hope everybody listens to this podcast because you did it from the very beginning. You weren't confused. You just said, you know what? I This is what I'm doing. And I'm going down this path. And you didn't let anything I've always stop been you. headstrong, that's for sure. <laughs> I've always been pretty headstrong in a diplomatic way, in a polite way. Mm-hmm. But I've always just envisioned life differently than other people, and I just gravitate, gravitated towards it. And I, in, in all rights, I should be homeless in some big city, but I just got lucky along the way, and somehow I made it. Somehow. But I, I, it was all luck. It was all luck, but it was all intention. And, uh, and that's, that's where it begins. You thought you believed you had the belief and you weren't afraid and you took that step. Every time you did something, you took the first step. Like you said, in the very beginning, it's all about taking that first step. It's hard to, to plan it all out. You plan it all out and then you've got to take that first step. And that's what changes your whole path and your whole journey and your whole life. Well, I can agree with that. The first step is the hard, hardest for anybody I I know people that have quit their jobs just because they want to fly fish in Montana the rest of their lives. So they buy a truck camper, park out on some river, and they're just doing that. You know, everyone has a different way of funding things. Yep, everybody has a different way. So, Tim, I I just, I absolutely love that we've reconnected. I want to thank you for sharing this time with us, this story, 
Uh, I really want people to connect. If they haven't found you again, like you said, you haven't come back to the reunions, you should come back to a reunion sometime and uh, and just pop in and see everybody because I think uh, you have so much to inspire them for. But downtheroad.org is your website. The three books, The Road That Has No End, Down the Road in South America, and Down the Road in Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Those are, you can get those immediately on the website uh, and really experience your story and your journey even more. And so highlighting this, uh, coming on here and, and having a voice for people, I, I just thank you from the bottom of my heart. Well, I appreciate it. And I am humbled by all that. And I think your podcast has a big future. I, 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 like I told you offline, I listened to, I was an early adopter of podcast and I've listened to, I mean, tons and tons of podcast and your sound quality and your show is really good. And I think you're going to go far with it. Awesome. Well, thanks. Well, if I can get you, if I can wrap you into coming to my live event, March 2nd, which is going to happen at the Indianapolis Art Museum, I would love to have you participate and, uh, and have people connect to you live. So think about that on your calendar. And that would be really fun to, to have it. We could have every little Greenwood reunion. People could come to see you. <laughs> you have to remind me of that. Cause that's, during ski, that's during ski season. I and I, I backcountry ski a lot nowadays. And uh, I would probably be not in the mo remembering that. But remind me and I'll do it. I will. I will remind you. If anything, we'll, we'll web conference you in from somewhere on a ski slope. On <laughs> the lift. Oh, shoot. Yeah. But, uh, but thanks so much, uh, Tim, and Everyday Leader. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I look forward to continuing to watch you on your journey. All right, and I'll look forward to watching your show grow. All right, thank you very much. Thank you. Everyday Leaders 50 and 50 Leadership Summit is coming to Indianapolis, Saturday, March 2nd, 2019. Join me along with the 50 and 50 guests from Everyday Leaders 50 and 50 podcast. This exclusive event will take place at the beautiful New Fields Indianapolis Museum of Art on Saturday, March 2nd, 2019. You won't want to miss this one-of-a-kind leadership workshop where you will personally engage with these 50 leaders and learn how to apply their strategies to live your life with success. Don't miss this opportunity. You can be a part of this exclusive inaugural leadership summit here in Indianapolis, March 2nd, 2019. Remember, there's limited space available, so reserve your spot now. If you know of anyone that would be interested in sponsoring this exclusive event, please have them contact me directly at make at makeconnectionsforlife.com. Thank you for following the podcast of Everyday Leaders 50 and 50.